Promised, a podcast about the hope and good news of Jesus, always including God's promises to encourage you along the way and show you how much God really loves you. Welcome to Promised with Zach Cole. We're glad you're here. I love to learn the origins of things or the origins of stories, characters, events. That's always been me. I am a huge history history nut. I am a huge theology nut. You kind of combine those and I want to know the history of why this particular theology is taught. What are the origins of it? Where's the scripture references for it? Or who in church history really strongly taught this particular teaching? When I was a kid, I was also a comic book nut. And comic books were always, well, not always, because some, they uh, had you guessing the origins of characters. Like for the longest time when I was a kid, there was a character named Wolverine. And part of the nature of why Wolverine was such a fascinating character was you didn't know his origin story. It wasn't until years later when they tried to piece it together, but it was always a guess of how he became the superhero Wolverine. I think we're probably all familiar with Batman's origin story or Superman's origin story. It's how did things begin or why are the stories happening the way that they are? And so for this today, today is for all of us in America, and I'm he- I'm hearing that there's other countries that kind of have taken on this theme of a Thanksgiving. I don't know if they have it on the same days or not, but today is Thanksgiving for the holiday for all of us who are in America and are Americans. And it comes from an, our history from long ago. Well, <laughs> from those of you other countries who are probably laughing when I just said American history from long ago. But for us who live within the context of America, it was back in the beginning of our country's history. And for so long, I wanted to know the origins of Thanksgiving. And for many of us who celebrate Thanksgiving, one of the key themes that comes to mind is that of American colonists sharing a feast with American natives in the New World. This coming to the New World, this new adventure, the new frontier helped bring about the concept and the holiday of Thanksgiving. So I went back and I wanted to study the origins of Thanksgiving. And for the longest time, I was taught in school that the first Thanksgiving was at Plymouth Rock. Well, after doing my history, I've come to find out that the actual first Thanksgiving that was celebrated by the English, the British uh, colonists, was actually in Jamestown, Virginia. And as a proud Southerner that I am, I was very pleased to find out that the first Thanksgiving was in Virginia rather than Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. But it wasn't a feast. It was more of a declaration of Thanksgiving. So part of the rules of the Virginia company that sent their crew to the New World One of their 10 main rules for their discovery or their embarking upon this new land is that one of these rules, when they got to the new world, they had to consecrate and dedicate that day that they landed safely and they made safe passage 
as a day of thanksgiving, and they were to celebrate that day annually. So fast forward a couple years later to, I believe it was 1621, where you had a very hard, hard winter in 1620 in Plymouth, Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. And a lot of the colonists there died. And they had a very good summer harvest, thanks to some local Native Americans, I believe it was the Wampanoag Indian tribe, who taught them how to hunt, who taught them how to grow corn, who showed them how to catch fish in the rivers there, and which poisonous plants not to eat. That's that's important. Don't eat those berries. They're, they will get you. And then they decided to, after this wonderful harvest of uh, their the fruits of their labor, they wanted to be sure to invite the local natives who helped them. And they had a three-day Thanksgiving festival where they all enjoyed merriment and fellowship and feasting in Thanksgiving towards all that the Lord had given them and for all of the the success of their colony. When survival is on the heart and mind, gratitude for a hospitable land, people, and provision is easier to come by. And we in America are beneficiaries of those who have gone before us. The Thanksgiving feasts of yesteryear lead us to be thankful for gathering with family and friends around a large bird, stuffing, pecan pie, and of course, football. I think the bears and lions are playing later on today. And even though that might not be the most exciting game, I have a few dogs in that fight, being a Georgia Bulldog fan. Um, a couple of Georgia Bulldogs, former Georgia Bulldog players, are, I believe, play for the Bears, so I'll probably be rooting for them. But, and they kind of circle back with the original Thanksgiving. Believe it or not, they actually did not have turkey there. They had deer. The Indians uh, hunted about five to six deer, I'm told. And so they didn't have any turkey. But... This is another side trail, fun fact. Benjamin Franklin thought that the turkey should actually be America's national bird and not the bald eagle. He thought the turkey was more regal and made more sense because the turkey had a large part in early colonial American life. But let's go back to this idea of Thanksgiving, the feast as we know it today. And let us pause for a moment and ask How can we, who view things through the lens of Christ, not lean in a little bit closer at the thought of a feast and of giving thanks around a table filled with family and friends? A familiar scene from Scripture surely comes to our hearts and minds when we think of this table and this feast. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 25. 
The Lord's Supper was also the Lord's Thanksgiving. On the night when he was betrayed by the very people who sat with him, Jesus still gives thanks. Did you catch that? And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. How could Jesus give thanks at a time like that when he knew what the night would bring on the night that he was betrayed and handed over to be crucified? How could Jesus give thanks for something that was going to bless the very people who were about to betray him in that same night? Jesus' love for us and his love for the Father are greater than we can possibly fathom. Thank God Jesus is not like us. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. And Jesus loves you so much more than you think he does. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's John chapter 15, verse 13. And it's fun to imagine what specific thanks Jesus gave to the Father at the supper. Did he give thanks over the bread and wine? Was he given thanks over the bread and wine, the same bread and wine that he would attach his declarative words to? This is my body, this is my blood, broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Was it thanks over the plan of salvation? Was it thanks over the eternal provision that was to be given for us? And this kind of provision was not like the ones that the American colonists experienced. Their feast provided a temporary sustenance for a temporary mortal existence. In the Lord's Thanksgiving Supper, we are not served turkey, green bean casserole, cornbread, and sweet tea. We are served Christ. He provides His very self as our sustenance for permanent immortal existence. Thinking about that just now, that He, in His supper, we're not getting, we're not being served turkey and green bean casserole and cornbread. We're being served by Christ Himself. And that reminds me of that other passage in Scripture that said, Christ did not purchase us with silver and gold, but with His own precious blood. That's amazing. How can eating and drinking do such wonderful things, you ask, in the Lord's Supper? Just eating and drinking do no such wonderful things. But it's the words given here by Jesus Himself which do exactly what Jesus says, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's the words It's the words, it's the words, along with the bodily eating and drinking that are the main thing in the Lord's Supper. Because whoever believes these words has exactly what they say. Forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, salvation, and everlasting life are far greater gifts than surviving a hostile, colonial-era American winter. The good gifts and promises of God are eternal, everlasting, and are for you. Because of the good gifts from Christ, we are given the promise of forgiveness of sins. These gifts strengthen our gift of faith in Christ, and God has promised to count it to us as righteousness. And not only is Jesus giving thanks for this provision, but He is giving thanks for us in our place. When our thanksgiving is not at the level it should be 
or at the value that it should be when we fail to give proper thanks to God for all of the good things he has done for us? Christ's thanksgiving is also counted as if it is ours. All that the law demands of us, the gospel gives to us as a gift to count as ours. For Christ's sake, this is most certainly true. So once again, especially at Thanksgiving, God is the active giver and we are the passive receiver of his gifts. Christ gave thanks and he also gave himself for you. So happy Thanksgiving. And now we're going to transition to the next part of the show, the gospel reading for the week in this week's text. And we're starting with Advent 1 in the Series C of the lectionary, if you're following along. And it's the gospel text of Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. And we're going to read this passage and we're going to look for the promise. So that's Luke 19, verse 28 through 40. This is kind of a strange passage to be reading at the beginning of Advent. I mean, you think Advent, you think maybe, you know, the coming of Christmas, right? The coming of Jesus being born. But this seems more like the coming of Jesus at Easter. But I think after we read this, when we look for the promises, we'll understand why the first reading of the new church year is at this passage and for Advent. We'll we'll discuss. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage, excuse me, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Hmm. For a really good understanding of how the people back in this time saw this triumphant entry of Jesus, you got to go listen to some things that a guy by the name of Chad Bird has said at 1517 on his on the their YouTube channel. It's fascinating stuff. There's so many things to pull from on the context of what it looked like to the Hebrews and the Romans that Jesus is riding in on a cult here. It's There's significance of the direction that Jesus came and from the mountain that he came. There's so many things to unpack. The imagery, the palms, the 
the donkey, the uh, Jesus riding on top of the cloaks. All of there's so much to unpack through there, but I'm going to try to get to the point of here in this passage of the promise that it, that I'm seeing from this that I believe the scripture is pointing to us, especially for it to be this new season of Advent. One of the first things that kind of jumped out to me when I was reading this is when the people were saying, and this is actually, I believe, a a song in Psalm, a, a, a psalm that is singing about the Messiah, a messianic psalm, if you will, where it says back in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, I'm just going to like <laughs> go back to the beginning of Luke because I think that's where it is. Remember when Jesus is born and the angels were there and they went to the shepherds. I believe it's in Luke. And they were making their announcement to the shepherds that Jesus was coming. Here we go. Luke chapter 2. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. And that seemed to like be a similar announcement. This kind of announcement that the king is coming. And one of the things to pull from in this promise And the promise that jumps out is the promise that the angels are announcing. But for our passage here today, it's the promised Messiah and his triumphant entry to go do what he came here to do. To die on the cross so that he can become sin, the sin of the whole world, and die, taking all that sin with him, to then be raised three days later and to offer that resurrection to all. That wonderful promise that was given way back in Genesis 3. We're now seeing this promised seed making its way To fulfill his purpose. The purpose of Jesus Christ and why he came was to die. To be the sacrificial lamb. For the entire world. And even though when we look at Advent and Christmas, we don't think Easter. That's why Jesus came. That was the whole reason that Christmas came was to get to Easter. That's why Jesus is here. That's why Jesus is at the triumphal entry. He knew, and like I said earlier, you got to go look at this stuff by Chad Bird in 1517 and 
the 30 minutes in the New Testament, 40 minutes in the Old Testament, all these different passages that are pointing to why Jesus entered Jerusalem like he did. He, on purpose, rode in on Jerusalem to proclaim that he was king. You might say, but he came in on a donkey. Look through Hebrew eyes, look through Hebrew texts, all throughout the Old Testament. If you're riding on a donkey into somewhere, into the city, that is a royal, powerful, king-like mount. Not a, he, He's coming in to rule. The Hebrews saw that and they recognized that that's what he was doing. The fact that he was coming into Jerusalem like that, the Romans saw that and they knew what he was doing and saying. The fact that during Passover you were expected to walk into Jerusalem for the Passover, and yet Jesus is not walking, he's riding on the donkey into Passover. It's very provocative. And again, I'm not going to get into it, but he he's starting the whole point of why he came. To the fulfill the promise given to Eve and Adam, the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise given to the whole world, that through this promised seed, all the world would be blessed. So as we begin this new church year, as we enter in this season of Advent, let us be reminded and thankful for the main point behind Christmas was that the promised Savior was here. Emmanuel. God with us. And that is an incredible concept when you think about it. Imagine if you were alive during the time that Jesus was born. To know that walking and talking on the earth was God in the flesh. But this is kind of a side note as well before we close. Just because we're not there seeing Jesus in the flesh does not diminish our relationship that we have with Him. The relationship that He starts, that He establishes, that He grows, and that He finishes all on His work. What a miracle that is. That the gospel, Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, explodes faith in Christ in us. And he's united with us in our baptism. And he's made that promise to us that he would never leave us or never forsake us. No matter what is happening in our life. That promise echoes back to the triumphant entry of Jesus. When he's basically going into Jerusalem to pick a fight. He knows what's going to happen to him because of this. And that is what he came to do. To die for our sins and to be raised for our justification. 
and to fulfill the promise that was given to God all the way back then and to take comfort and peace in knowing that that promise that was given was the plan that God had all along before the foundation of the world was even laid. God is so on purpose with His plan for you and His plan for you is Jesus Christ. And God is so on purpose with His promise for you. And I can't think of anything greater on Thanksgiving Day to be thankful for than to be thankful for the promises that God has made through His Son, Jesus Christ, that are for you. Consider one, He does not work, but believe in Him, He justifies in Godly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, 5.